you believe that this is the first Sunday in 2021? Some of you can believe it. Some of you cannot. As we launch into this new year, I was, I was reminded, somebody reminded me this morning, the first of they said, do you remember the first service that you preached in 2020? Uh, I think it was out of Psalm chapter 20. And they said, do you have another psalm that you're going to launch us into this year? Nope. <laughs> We're going to Revelation. Figure that fits better with what we may have coming. And uh, I am so grateful that I did not stand up here and prophesy at 2020 as to uh, all of the things that may come. Uh, I'm glad that there are things that the Lord says, my mercies are new every morning. That whatever it is that He has for us, He leads us in. And I am certainly grateful for that. I have high hopes for this year. I have high hopes in your life. I have high hopes in my life that whatever it is that God wants to accomplish, that we will allow Him to do so, that there are new levels of surrender uh, because there are doors in our life that we like to close and say, Lord, you can do anything you want in all of these areas, but if you would just leave this room alone. And I, and I believe that the Lord is drawing us to places of greater surrender to Him so that He truly can be the Lord of all. Uh, today, as we launch into the Word of God today, we're going to go back to Revelation, the series that we started actually in September. And uh, I know that this might not seem like a, a, a first Sunday of January message, uh, and as we get into it, you may begin to understand why, but I do believe that there's some continuity that's important for us as we go along in this. And the title of this message is Sealed and Secure, Sealed and Secure, as we begin to look at Revelation chapter 7. And uh, I'm going to ask if you would take your Bibles or take your uh, electronic devices. I was, I was teasing the group in the first service this morning. I said, there are so many times that I see people at the start of the service get out their electronic Bible and I never see their eyes again. And I know at some point they quit reading the Bible and started playing Candy Crush. And I have so many times wanted to just walk down the aisle and just stand there next to somebody who thinks that I believe that they're reading the Bible, but they're way too animated, uh, and especially for Revelation. But... Uh, if you would keep your finger there. Father, as we approach your word this morning, we are in such desperate need of your Holy Spirit today that you would begin to reveal to us not just the truth of your word, but Lord, all the possibilities of your word as it relates to us and how we are to live our life and how we are to honor you. How are we to live in these last days of time? And so Lord, as we come into the house of the Lord today, we recognize that we are here because we need your instruction. And so we pray that you would just do your work in our hearts, whether we be in this building, Lord, or maybe those that are joining us online today, and I ask that you would do a miraculous work as we dig into your word and all that it means to us, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to warn you ahead of time, we are not going to get all the way through this chapter, uh, and so you're going to have to stay with me and join me again next Sunday as we get through this, but this the seventh chapter in Revelation, if you are a musician, you would call the seventh chapter an interlude. If you are an athlete, you call this seventh chapter time out. Uh, all of this, however, actually brings to us what I believe is probably the most comforting chapter in the book of Revelation, this seventh chapter. 
It follows that after the breaking of the first six seals that we saw in chapter 6, the seals that hold the scroll, that unwraps the will of God as it relates to how human history will end, Jesus Himself, because of His death on the cross, is worthy to cross over the glassy sea, to approach the throne. He's worthy to take the seal from the right hand of God. He's worthy to break the seals, and He's worthy to open the scroll. And so as we get to this chapter 6, it just about takes us to the end of the world. And now we have this interlude. And and I want you to know that as we look at this, I, I remember telling you at the very first message in Revelation that if you think that Revelation is chronological, you're going to have a a really, really difficult time with this, that there's many times that it's more circular and it goes back and forth over itself. In fact, one of the things that I heard from one of the theologians that I really liked is the way he explained this. He says, for those that make t-shirts that are made out of color, he said, "You, you first you push one color over it and then you come back and you go over that same thing and you push another color which begins to add a little bit uh, more detail to it and then however many colors and he said by the end of it you have a thorough picture of what was going on and I believe that as we look at Revelation we, we can see that take place in, in all of this before us. And so we get to this chapter and it's designed to give us a perspective and frankly a really, really unusual way as we will see that It's designed to bring to us a level of comfort and security in our heart. And as we launch into the year 2020 today, we are seeing so much of what we had described in chapter 6 starting to intensify in our world. And while these are terrifying things, we have a knowledge that regardless of what we see around us, this is what we know. Jesus Christ is coming again. Jesus Christ is coming again. And as we look at that, we hang on to that knowledge because sometimes people's experience in the book of Revelation only brings them fear. But chapter 7 is intended to bring us comfort, not rooted in what is happening around us, but it's rooted in the comfort that Jesus alone brings to us that comfort. And knowing that we belong to Him, we can face the future. Now, from the beginning of this book, I was quoting a friend of mine, Dr. James Bradford, who pastors in Central Assembly in Springfield, Missouri, and and he said of this, and I have quoted him a number of times, the details may be difficult, but the message is unmistakable. And I want you to know that as we get into this seventh chapter, the details are going to be difficult, but the message is unmistakable. So for those of you that may be following along, the first point of the message this morning is this. There's this moment of pause as we read in verses 1 through 3. John writing says this, after I saw four angels, or after this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. I like that. The living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until 
we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of God. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that, there's a few questions that pop to my mind that I would like to explore. The first question is this. Why are angels holding back the four winds? When we think of angels, we often think of them in terms of of maybe your guardian angel, angels that protect you, and some of you need multiple guardian angels the way that you live your lives. But we often think of them as ministers of the Lord, and yet in this particular context, we recognize that the Lord is using these angels in a destructive force. And we see the words in verses 1 through 3. Number one, there's an angel that before they begin to unleash all of this, one angel stands up and says, hold on a second. I need to prevent you from bringing harm to the earth and the sea and the trees. I need to to hold you back. In other words, here's this time out before you do this. And we look at this and say, why is it that angels are being used in this way? Well, I believe that if you look through the history of Scripture, you'll discover that angels a number of times throughout Scripture were used to display the wrath of God as well. Example we find is, is David saw an angel that was standing over Jerusalem in 2 Samuel 24. And similarly, we find in Ezekiel chapter 9, the prophet saw in a vision seven angels carrying out God's judgment against a corrupt Jerusalem several hundred years after David. So it's not surprising that when we get into the book of Revelation and we see the angels, that they may be used in ways where God is pouring out His wrath or bringing about an ultimate justice. Another question that we have when we look at this might be, why is it that the angels are standing at the four corners of the earth? Now, for those of you that may have uh, thought that that means that this is a flat earth, that is not what that means at all. It means from the vision of John that these angels are holding back something that's going to happen to the entire earth, all over the earth. There will be something coming from the judgment of God that will affect every nation, every sea, every ocean, every tree, every lake. It is in its entirety that he is speaking of in this particular instance. Another question that we might ask is why or what does it mean that nothing can be harmed until until a seal is put on the foreheads of the servants of God if you were to look back at Ezekiel 9 and I've told you in the past that as you get into Revelation you're going to need an understanding particularly of some Old Testament history in order to to understand what Revelation means in Ezekiel chapter 9 we also read about God directing his angels to put a mark on the forehead of the righteous before the other angels were permitted to go in and just kill everything that took place there in Jerusalem. And so this seal of the Holy Spirit is being put as a mark of protection. It is a a mark of preservation. It's a mark on the forehead that likely indicates ownership. Now, I don't believe that that is going to be a visible mark that each of us see because I believe it's a spiritual marking that takes place because we are inhabited by the Holy Spirit of God. So there is an ownership by virtue of who we allow to live within us that seals us from much of what's going to take place in the last days. And so this sealing takes place as a mark of protection and preservation and ownership from God. And so in this pause... Before the seventh seal is opened and before the sixth seal is fully complete, 
It's like timeout. I need before we do anything further to go and seal those that belong to me. And we look at this and say, well then, who are these servants that are being sealed? I need you to understand that there are two views of those who are being sealed here. I want to read out of verses 4 through 14. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. And from the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000. After this, I looked... And there was before me a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes, were holding palm branches in their hand, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and around the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, what an interesting dialogue. One of the elders, after falling down before God, gets up and looks at John and he says, These in the white robes, who are they and where did they come from? And John answered, sir, you know. In other words, I don't know. (laughs) You know. And he said, these are those who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, I need you to understand, we are at a fork in the road as it relates to the book of Revelation There are two distinct interpretations of Revelation chapter 7 that born-again believers hold. One interpretation of Revelation 7 is that these are two separate multitudes. Another interpretation is that this is the same multitude that is described in two different ways, and I want to spend a few minutes examining these two interpretations. Now, Before I do this, you need to know that I am not interested in destroying your faith. I believe that it's okay for Christians to ask critical questions as it relates to Scripture, even if it may for a moment cause us confusion. I know that as we approach this, I'm going to ask you to ask questions of the Scripture that may make you uncomfortable because of the way that you have always held a belief, but I believe that Revelation allows us, and I believe that you as a church are mature enough to ask and have critical thought as it relates to the Word of God in Revelation in particular. So there are two particular interpretations of this Scripture. There is a viewpoint that is most familiar to most of us, and it goes like this. Before the great tribulation period, that the church is to be raptured. 
and that the Holy Spirit, who's presently in the church and currently serves as a restraining influence, according to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, is withdrawn with the church when it is raptured from the earth. And then immediately after the rapture of the church, 144,000 Jews will acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah, according to Revelation chapter 7. The Jews that are numbered here as 12,000 from every tribe will become evangelists. Their sealing indicates that they will be immune from all of the attacks so that their ministry will be accompanied by that immunity from the work of the Antichrist. And that in the darkest hours of the world, during a time when the Antichrist is ruling, these 144,000 witnesses will be incredibly effective. In fact, one of the theologians that I was reading calls them the 144,000 Jewish Billy Grahams of the tribulation. Let loose on our world. Their effectiveness will meet with unprecedented success. The second multitude, which is seen in Revelation 7, we believe, those that believe this view, are a result of the evangelistic efforts that lead to an uncountable multitude from all of the nations and all of the tribes and the people and the languages that are then saved during this time. And that tribulation is then marked by a huge ingathering of souls, and that is essentially this view in brief. Now, let me give you a little history of this view. This particular version began to be taught about 1850 by the Plymouth Brethren minister by the name of James Darby. His interpretation of prophecy was ultimately taken over by a man by the name of C.I. Schofield. How many of you own a Schofield study Bible? If you do, then you will know where this view came from and how he was a proponent of it. Schofield popularized this view, and it is held devoutly today by many, many believers all over the world. In fact, this viewpoint is so popular that it has almost become you're a heretic to even question it, or you're unloyal to Scripture. But I want you to know today, for the purpose of being critical thinkers about the Word, I'm willing to run that risk today, although I will tell you I personally hold that this view may be true. But I also want you to understand the full view of Scripture. And so as a biblical, critical thinker, there are some questions that we may want to ask based on our reading of Scripture and our understanding of biblical doctrine. And some of these questions come out of the way that the text is written. And while you look at this with me, I want you to understand that some of these questions are born out of conversations that Dr. George Wood, who is a former general superintendent of the Assemblies of God, had written out. So I just wanted you to know that these were not birthed out of my heretical thinking mind, but that these come from some theologians that I deeply admire and think that it's worthy for the church to begin to think about some of these things. One of the problems that we face as we look at this is the text of Revelation itself. Because for this particular view to be true, it's necessary for several things to have already happened in Revelation. For one thing, the church must have already been raptured. As we have looked at it in view of chapter 4, verse 1, when John is caught up in the spirit into heaven. 
And we have often associated him being caught in the spirit up into heaven as being the symbol or symbolically of the church being raptured from the earth at that time. And so when John was told to come up here, we who have looked at the scripture say that also meant for us that that was the symbol that we left the earth. It must also mean that we would take that every other scene following Revelation chapter 4, that the church would be absent from that. However, we find that when John is told to come up into heaven, the text says that he immediately was in the spirit when he was captured and taken into heaven. Captured is not the right word, but when he was lifted up into heaven. Although if you're going to be captured by the spirit, that's not bad at all. In other words, the way that he got to this view of heaven was that the spirit took him there. Now, if we look at this textually, some of the questions we ask ourselves is, if we as a church hold to this view that we are raptured in chapter 4, then how do we deal with the other times when he was in the Spirit? In chapter 1, verse 10, it says he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. In chapter 4, verse 2, he was, the Spirit carried him away to heaven. When we get to chapter 17, it tells us that John was carried away in the Spirit into the wilderness. And in John chapter 21, verse 10, he's carried away by the Spirit to a great high mountain. So if it's true that the church is carried up with John when he is carried in the Spirit, then what happens to the church when he's carried away in the Spirit in these other chapters? It's an interesting question for us to ask. Is the church readjusted four different times in Revelation? There's also within this Scripture, textually, another question that comes to us, and that's this. It comes to deal with how do we deal with the word church, a word that is not specifically used in Revelation chapter 4 until the end of the book. Therefore, the absence of the word church must mean that the church is not there if the way we read this is correct. However, there are other terms, and, and honestly, I'm not going to be able to get to where these other terms fit in until next week, but there are terms like saints or the elect that are used. And next week we will look at the scriptures of how this all fits into that. But we have always assumed that that term saints or elect refers to Jewish believers or tribulation saints. However, as you look at the rest of the New Testament, words like saints or the elect are frequently used of believers through the rest of the New Testament. In fact, the word church does not appear in the Gospels of Mark, Luke, and John. But that doesn't mean that the church wasn't there when those Gospels were written. In fact, the most important letter regarding the destiny of the church, the letter to the Romans, the first 15 chapters of that that embrace the doctrine of the church, the word church is not even in there. In fact, if you are a studier of your word, you will also recognize that 2 Timothy, the word church, does not occur. First and second Peter, the word church does not occur. First and second John, the word church does not occur. In all those instances, the lack of the occurrence does not mean that the church wasn't there. It's just, it is very present, but it is not used in that terminology. Also, textually when we look at this, there is the assumption of this viewpoint that the 144,000 in Revelation are Jewish evangelists. Yet as you look at Scripture, there is nothing in the text that tells us that they are evangelists. It simply notes that they are sealed. 
But there's not a word that speaks to us about what their activity is or what they do. So textually, when we look at Revelation, there are some questions that come to our mind as to how does this fit. Not only are there some textual questions that I believe healthy Christians need to ask, I believe there's some theological questions that we need to ask that cause us to be able to look at this critically. Theologically, here are some questions that we must ask. The theological problem is the assumption that the greatest growth of the church is going to take place without the presence of the Holy Spirit as we know Him today. Think about that. Now, I can see how in 1850, the non-charismatic division of the church could understand that the church could have a great evangelistic outreach without the work of the Holy Spirit because they were never much concerned about that because it wasn't a present boldness that was given to them. But when we look at this scripture, we have to see this in such a way that with the removal of the Holy Spirit, when the church is raptured, that somehow without the present moving of the Spirit, there will be the greatest evangelistic outreach in the history of the world. And along with that theological stance that you must take, you also have to have the viewpoint that assumes that during the worst seven years in the history of humankind that the church will start over from scratch and at the end of those seven years will become a vast multitude, so vast that John says it was unable to be numbered. And they will do this without the power of the Holy Spirit since the Spirit, according to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, says this, and now you know what is holding back, holding him back, so that he, he being the Antichrist, may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so until he is taken out of the way. In this viewpoint, all of this takes place without the ministry of the Holy Spirit as we know it today. For comparison's sake, and, and believe me, I am not trying to destroy your theology. I simply want us to be thinking people as we approach the Word of God. For comparison's sake, let me add this. With the power of the Holy Spirit that was outpoured on the day of Pentecost in the book of Acts, it took the early church 20 years to even begin to realize that it was not just a Jewish organization, but that it included Gentiles. So if the Holy Spirit functions in the tribulation as it did in the Old Testament, for this would be the viewpoint that the Holy Spirit somehow is allowed back into the world, but not in the way that we see it today, that in Old Testament times, the way the Spirit functioned would lead our world to an amazing revival is something that we need to look at. And here's another question that comes from that theologically. How will 144,000 Jews, which is an ethnically closed group, establish in an amazingly short period of time an international body of saints, especially 
when only a few of them will be empowered by the Holy Spirit. The tribulation church without the Holy Spirit, according to this viewpoint, will actually have greater success than the present church has had since the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Acts to today. So great will be their impact. And then we ask, well, how does this viewpoint fit into Joel 2 and Acts 2 when it says that in the last days there will be signs and wonders, but there will also be an unprecedented move of the Spirit that is poured out upon all flesh. This is one of the problems with that view that we, as Bible-believing people looking at Revelation, need to wrestle with. Another theological issue that we must question as we look at this is what I call the second chance doctrine. It's a second chance in this meaning, that if you miss the rapture, you can still get saved. Now, some of you will know exactly what I'm talking about, that I grew up as an Assembly of God preacher's kid. I grew up in such a way that my mom never left any doubt in my mind that I was one sin away from being kicked out of heaven. As a result of that, that fear motivation was what was to keep me from ever doing anything wrong. And there was a time when I was a young man that I came home from school when mom was supposed to be there, and she was not. Being a good, frightened Christian boy that I was, I thought the rapture had taken place. <laughs> any of you ever experienced any of that? For those of you that are brand new Christians, you have no idea the fear that you're missing out on. <laughs> but for those of us that grew up in, in that society... Some of you parents are guilty. You are guilty of teaching your children the same thing. And so the first thing that I would do was instantly try to call another Christian friend and hope they would answer the phone. <laughs> In the event that they did not, and my fear began to, level, to raise to a level of, of unprecedented shaking, I begin to think, okay, I am now going to have to live through the tribulation and get my head cut off <laughs> so that I can be a tribulation saint. Don't tell me none of you have ever thought about that. <laughs> Built into that theology is an idea that there is a second chance doctrine of salvation. But in the first mention in Revelation of Christ's return to earth, there is no hope carried of a second chance in regard to the blessed hope of the church. It tells us in Revelation 1-7, indicates, look, he is coming in the clouds and every eye will see him and even those who pierced him and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him, so shall it be, amen. And so the first reference in Revelation to the coming of the Lord is a very direct word. Given those revelations or given those reservations, listen, it does not mean that this view cannot happen. I need you to understand that. It does not mean because I personally hold that this is the view that will happen, but there are some great questions that Bible-believing people need to ask as it relates to this. And I think that we need to be able to look at the book of Revelation with the idea that there may be a number of possibilities. And if we separate certainties from theories, I, I also believe that that's a healthy place for us that we can get so tied into one thought that we teach and we preach that this is the way that it must be. And as preachers, I believe that we walk on dangerous grounds when we do that. It's one of the problems that happens when we are so firm in our belief that the way I see it must be the only way that 
I think that in Revelation, it leads us to question some things that would be healthy for us. And the fact remains that there are differences among born-again believers on how God is going to close the age of human history. There is absolutely no difference in the fact that we know who is going to close the age of human history. We are in unity on that, that it will be God Himself, and that's the way it will be. Again, I remind you, the details may be difficult, but the message is unmistakable. God is in control of human history. God is going to bring down the curtain. And all that we do as we look at the Scripture, and, and some have differing precepts on, on how it all might happen, but there's no question that we live in an age where Jesus Christ is coming again, and He controls the history of humanity. So I personally feel that from Scriptures there is a deliberate attempt in all of this. You say, why, why does God leave us in confusion? Why doesn't God just spell it out? I believe that there's intent in the Spirit for us in this. And let me share with you why. I believe that the attempt of Scripture is to do this for us. That we need to live in certain places of uncertainty just so that we will continue to be faithful in those times. This is not the only place in Scripture, by the way, that causes us tension and anxiety. How many of you are perfectly capable of explaining the Trinity. We have one God, three persons. I've been preaching for 40 years and I still don't have that all figured out. I'm just being really honest with you. I've seen it in egg. I've seen it described as water. The fact of the matter is, is that when we are trying to describe the doctrine of the Trinity, which we be, believe and know in our heart, it's difficult for us without the tension of trying to describe Him as three people. But it's within that tension that we work and we live, understanding there are things about God that I cannot describe. I know that He's got three personalities and He is one God. And it's within that tension that we live. So why would it be unreasonable... For us to live with an attention of not being exactly sure how to apply the end times of revelation to the way that we live. Here's what it does for us. Within this tension, and, and just so you'll know, next week I'm going to get to the other way that it is interpreted. I thought I was going to be able to do that today and I'm not going to have a chance. We'll get to that next week. But in this tension, what begins to rise to the surface is that the church needs to live in a state of readiness. At all times. Matthew 24, 42 says, Therefore keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. So be ready. Be ready to go now if the Lord should call you. Be ready to die if you should die. Be ready if He delays. Whatever it is, we need as a church to live in a state of readiness. Because there are things we don't know. Also what rises to the surface out of this tension is this. That the church needs to be prepared to endure. Going, Pastor, please don't say that. There are things that are unpopular about the aspect of Scripture that we need to be aware of. The Scripture tells us that we need to be prepared for the possibility of endurance in Matthew 24, 13, when it says that he that stands firm to the end. In other words, there is inherent within this the fact that that's not going to be easy to do. 
And so built into this tension of not understanding is that we need to be prepared to endure. We also need to be prepared to live a normal life. The Scripture says that for some of you, you may have a lifetime that is without crisis happening, and if that's the case, you are to live by putting your talents to work for the kingdom of God. That's what the parable of the talents is all about, taking what God has given you, living your everyday normal life to glorify the Lord in all of that. Never knowing for sure when the Lord may come, but always knowing He is coming. And always be ready. And then there is this tension that honestly we as the American church have not had to deal much with, and that is the area of living in constant sorrow. There are other places in our world that view Revelation as if they are going through the tribulation right now. There are places that are afraid to step out of their house and proclaim Jesus as Lord because it will cost them their life. So we all look at Scripture from a different perspective from what we are going through, but the Lord is telling them that they need to be able to walk through a valley of sorrows, understanding that regardless of how we view or how we interpret, He holds the future of mankind in His hands and that we are to live loyal to him no matter what. I'm going to ask the worship team to come because I'm going to try to wrap this up here. Here's what I need you to do for me. You've got to promise me that unless Jesus comes this week, you're coming back next week. If he comes, then it won't, won't matter at all what I think about the rest of this. But here's the deal, and, and, I, and I, I trust that you know my heart in this. I have, I have labored over this message Because I know that there are some that hold some things so deeply and I just want us to be prepared for whatever happens. For whatever happens. That we, we can ask theologically challenging questions and ask the Holy Spirit to lead us and guide us. And that even really, really good believing people might see things differently, but we're in unity as to who holds the future. And I have so many Assembly of God ministers in this church that if I'm wrong on any of this, you can vote me out. There, our church is loaded with credentialed ministers. And even us may look at things a little different, but is it okay for us as a church to critically ask good questions of the Scripture? Is it okay for us to look at this and say, I don't know how this fits. God, I know you've got in charge of it all, but I just, at this fork in the road, did not want to take one direction without the ex with the exclusion of at least allowing you to know what some of the other people that I deeply admire look at Scripture and see because I think that this will make us more well-rounded as a body of believers we need to be able to have the apologetic of the Scripture so that we know what we believe and we know why we believe it and then we also need to be able to like John when the angel looked at him and said who are these and he's going I don't know I don't, I'm, I'm standing here and I don't know you know you're asking me the question well we're going to get into that a little bit next week about what are some of the other possibilities and how does that relate to us in this? Would you stand with me and we're going to sing a song and then we're going to have some communion together to wrap the service up. And be patient with me, please. Don't, don't think I'm a heretic. I just want you to know what the scripture says and what it can possibly mean.
going to ask that you would take your communion set together there. And for those of you that may not be familiar, if you push down on the flap, it will separate that top piece of plastic from that which we will use as the wafer. And as you hold the wafer in your hand this morning, I, I can't think of a better time than the first Sunday of a new year for us to recognize the significance of what Jesus did so that we could be sealed. Scripture tells us that he was unbelievably tortured and beaten. His back was whipped, nails in his hands and feet, thorns stuffed into his scalp, hair plucked out of his face. The scripture says this is all part of what he went through to provide justice for the sins that we have committed. He did this for us. And as we look at the end of the story in Revelation, the end of human history, what you need to know is that whatever side you're on is dependent upon what you've done with Jesus. And so I'm going to ask that you would close your eyes for just a moment today because... As we get through this seventh chapter, I can assure you, you're going to want to be one of those that's sealed by the Holy Spirit. You are not going to want to face eternity without having made the decision that Jesus will be your Savior and your Lord. So before we get into this, if you're here today and you say, I've never made that decision. I've never personally asked Jesus to forgive me of my sins or to be my Lord and Savior. I'm going to start over here on, on my right and your left. I'm just going to ask if you just lift your hand. I'm not going to embarrass you, but I'm going to agree with you. But this is a decision that will determine what happens to you in eternity, whether you are in heaven or whether you are in hell. This is the life decision that you make. If you receive Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes and lives within you and you are sealed, protected, secure. If you're here today and you say, I'd like today to be my day for Jesus, would you, on your left side, would you just lift your hand so that I can agree with you? Yes, ma'am, I agree with you. Are there others today? Move now into the left center section. Are you positive today? Are you positive? This is no chance of going through this without knowing for sure. Yes, ma'am, I agree with you. Are there others? Moving now into the right center. This is such an important decision. I don't want anybody to make light of it. But this is the decision that determines everything. Moving now all the way to the, to the far right, my left, and into the overflow. Is God knocking on the door of your heart today? The Father, we agree with the two today that said in light of scripture and in light of everything that's taking place I want to be sure before I take this communion remembering what Jesus did for me that I have allowed that to be part of who I am I'm, I don't want it to be something he did in history but I want it to be something he did for me and today they personalize that and are asking you into their life would you forgive their sin would you cleanse them make them a brand new creature and would you set up the Holy Spirit in the throne room of their life sealing them Lord I pray and I thank you for this in Jesus' name. As we lift the wafer before the Lord, he said, when you do this, when you eat this, I need you to do it in remembrance of me. I want there not to be a moment that you forget everything that I went through on your behalf. 
So Lord, we ask your blessing over this, which represents your broken body, broken for us. And we ask that you would bless it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us partake. And now if you would gently open the cup. I have a difficult time of looking at this without the knowledge that there is an accuser of the brethren that constantly is taking your name before the Lord of why you're not worthy. We know that we have an intercessor who's always lifting our name before the Father for our benefit, but do you know that there's an accuser? And when I think about that in light of my own life, I recognize that the book that he has of the reasons I'm not worthy is is quite substantial. And every bit of it is true. And the only thing that separates me and the only thing that separates you from suffering of everything that we deserve is the blood of the Lamb. And so when we look at this cup, this cup applied to your life is the very reason that the accuser of the brethren will be dismissed. And you humbly will stand before God with your head bowed knowing that everything he says about you is true. But Jesus has the last word. And he will say, I remember the date when they called upon my name and I wrote their name in the Lamb's book of life and old things are passed away. Behold, all things became new because of the cup. At the beginning of this year, we look at this cup and recognize this blood of Jesus separates us from what we deserve and the grace that he has given. So Father, we remember what you did through your son for our benefit. And as we drink this juice, symbolically of the blood of Jesus Christ, we do so understanding that it is only by your grace and by your mercy that we are not hopeless and helpless as we start this new year. So bless it and enable us to live victoriously through it. In Jesus' name, amen. Let us partake together. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Now I want to remind you, this is the first week of 2021. Just like we regularly take the first fruits of what we earn and we tithe that to the Lord. It belongs to the storehouse of God. So I believe that this first week of January is a great time for us to tithe an hour and evening to come together and pray and seek the Lord. I know there may be a million other things that you're battling with that time, but would you honor God and would you set aside six o'clock to seven o'clock each evening And if you're able to come and join us, please do. We're going to have a short devotion by one of our pastoral staff each evening that will give directions for what we're going to be praying for for the rest of the evening starting tonight. But folks, there's never been a time when the church has needed to pray more than we do today. We need to pray. And so I'm going to ask that you would please set aside that time and come. I'm also, again, reminding you, please, 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 come back so that you can hear the rest of this message so that we can balance the scales with what scripture says and means and and how we'll work this together I ask that of you so father would you bless your church now 
as we go in victory knowing who holds the future. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God.